Today is March 23rd, 2017, and you are listening to episode one of A Pint of Law. I am Matthew Curtis, your host from the University of Notre Dame, bringing you today's most important legal issues in a way that you could explain to your bartender. My guest today is Jeff Schmidt, a 3L from the University of Notre Dame. We're going to talk about his most recent note titled, Authorized Personnel Only, The Patent Exhaustion Doctrine After Helfrich. Jeff received his BA in biology from St. John's University in Minnesota, his PhD in cancer research from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and his MBA from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. At Notre Dame, Jeff is a member of the Law Review and the Moot Court Board, where he serves as a brief writer on the showcase team. Jeff spent both his 1L and 2L summers as an associate in the patent group of Morrison and Forrester in San Diego, where he will return as an associate after graduation. So thank you so much for joining me, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Um, so Jeff, let's start with the basics. What are patents and what are their purposes? So a patent, uh, what it is, is it's a government-issued right to exclude, so exclude others from making, using, selling, um, offering for sale, that sort of thing, um, inventions, whatever you patented. And so the purpose of this, uh, which was expressed within the Constitution, is to promote the progress of essentially technology and science. Okay. It's by providing that um, exclusivity. So if you invent it, only you have the right to, um, or you're able to exclude others from selling it as well. Okay, great. Um, so let's get into a little more focus of this article. So now that we know what a patent is, what is patent exhaustion? How to develop? And what areas of the patent law is it applicable to? So the patent exhaustion doctrine, uh, really what it provides is that the Upon the initial authorized sale of a patented article, it terminates all patent rights as to that article. So if you have some sort of device that you develop that's patented, as soon as you sell it to someone, they can resell it, they can use it, they can really do whatever they want, and you can no longer sue them. So there's kind of that initial exchange that they pay you money, they get the product, and then they can do whatever they want with it. And so this developed more than 150 years ago through some Supreme Court case law where um, they essentially came up with this doctrine because they were concerned over issues where a patent holder would sell an article and then would be able to control its post-sale use, would then you know maybe prevent the person from reselling it, or if they do resell it, then you then go to the subsequent owner and force them to get a, give you a royalty. And so they just wanted to prevent that and say, you just get one chance at making money off your patented device as soon as it's sold, that's it. Okay, so for example, Apple couldn't try to get fees from me for the way I use my phone. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Once you once you buy your phone, any of the patents that are embodied within the phone, they can no longer um, try to get royalties from. Okay. Perfect. Um, so your your paper cites that smartphones can have up to two hundred fifty thousand patents. Um, on a broad scale, how has changing technology challenged the patent exhaustion doctrine? So. The challenge really came up, like with this case exemplified, is these method patents. So in today's technology, you've got you know, largely electronic technology, things where um, de devices are interacting wirelessly, and then you have patents that aren't necessarily you know, physical features of a phone. Like you certainly have some you know, chips and various things within a phone that are, that are embodied there, but you also have in the digital age these technologies that are methods of communicating between different parts of um, devices that are sometimes you know far away amongst each other and so it's not limited to you know what's physically in the device anymore here you might have patents that um, require multiple parties um, to work together and different devices and so it's not 
like a, you know a simple um, you know coffee mug that's patented that it's it's right there you see it it's pretty clear what's there. Um, so these method patents in the digital age have become increasingly complex. Okay, it sounds like this isn't going away for us then. What happened in Hilfrich? So in this case, what happened was uh, there's over 30 patents that this Hilfrich um, entity owned. And these were largely divided into you know, a couple different classifications on how they're used. There were these content claims and then these handset claims. And they all relate to smartphones in, in some capacity. Um, or at least mobile mobile handsets. And so the, the handset claims, they call, these are largely claims that are within the phone that affect how the phone operates, things that you know, whoever has the phone, they would be using those pat patents and be practicing. But these patents also had other claims called content claims. And so these were claims that would be practiced by a... Um, by an entity like the New York Times, CBS, JCPenney, there's any company out there that might want to send hyperlinks to a mobile phone. And so they would practice these patents by sending the user some sort of content and the user could open them. But uh, in terms of these claims, the handset claims would be practiced by the handset holder who bought the phone and the content claims would be practiced by outside entities that are sending things to the user. And so what happened here was Helfrick licensed their entire patent portfolio to manufacturers such as Apple to make their phones that um, practice these handset claims and would also be able to practice um, these content claims when outside entities are sending them content. And but so what happened was, you know, after these phones enter the stream of commerce, um, Helfrick began trying to license the content claims to various parties outside and got I think over 150 licenses with various various entities, but some of them, including New York Times, CBS, JCPenney, they they refused to um, take a license, and Helfrich ended up filing suit and saying you're infringing these content claims because um, technically speaking they were, and what they were saying is you know the patent exhaustion doctrine helps them, and so that's kind of what um, um, what what brought around this uh, this case. And largely, like the patent exhaustion doctrine, you know, when those users bought the phone, the handset claims were all exhausted. So when the when the owner of the phone starts using the, the mobile phone, um, they might be practicing the handset claims, but they're not infringing. And then the content um, senders, like New York Times, they were practicing the content claims. They said, hey, the mobile phones are exhausted including those patents, along with the content claims. That was their defense. So they were trying to get a free ride on the exhausted patents that went to the, the users. Exactly. Getting to the center of your article, you point out that there's three main differences between the district court's reasoning and the federal circuits. Um, the first is the distinction between patent inventions and patented systems. So what's kind of the difference, and what are the implications of the federal circuit's ruling on the basis of inventions for patent exhaustion? So with this, the inventions versus systems approach that, uh, so with the inventions, for instance, there what the courts did, um, or the Federal Circuit did, was they looked at the claims and they tried to figure out, you know, they tried to divide them into this content claims and handset claims. They said, you know, these handset claims, these all, these are all part of a single invention. It's part of how this phone operates. Um, and then you know they're they're similar in a lot of ways. And then you have this content claims, and they said, well, these are you know not practiced by the hand, by the handset owner at all. These are practiced by outside content providers. They're all similar in a lot of ways. These are distinct inventions. 
Now, the, the district court, they looked at this in terms of a patented systems. So they kind of lumped it all together and said, you know, these were all licensed together to the handset manufacturers. Um, There's two of the 30 plus patents that had both handset and content claims within them. And so they just kind of lumped these all together, um, particularly since the content claims do require um, some components of the handset claims to be practiced because kind of the, the last step is to correspond with the handset holder. And so the district court considered it all one system. And if you start exhausting part of it, like the handset portion, it's all exhausted. Whereas the, the federal circuit treated them as distinct inventions. And they said, well, the handset claims, those are exhausted, they're within the handset, but the content claims, those are completely separate. So we're gonna treat them separately. Okay, and that seems to be in line with previous precedent, right? Yeah, yeah, the, the Quanta decision and to some extent the Univis uh, Supreme Court case. Okay, great. So we're going to move on to the second issue here. It seems to relate to patent exhaustion where the second invention strictly requires the first invention to practice its claim. So should there be a merger so that both claims could be exhausted? So this is where uh, the Federal Circuit really grabbed hold of Quanta. So the Quanta was a Supreme Court case in, I believe, 2008. And the Supreme Court case you know, um, basically said that there has to be what's called substantial embodiment. So in order for claims to be exhausted, there has to be substantial embodiment within the device that was sold. Now here the device that was sold was the handset units, so the cell phones. And so then they looked at um, these content claims, and then they said, are these substantially embodied within the phones? And in Quanta, the Supreme Court um, indicated that they should look for whether um, all the inventive aspects of the claims are embodied within the phone. So then they, they looked at these content claims, figured out what are the inventive aspects of it, and then said, you know, do these lie within the phone or are these outside the phone? And what they said was that these are outside their phone. They said none of the inventive aspects are within the phone. And so with that, they said, uh, essentially, they indicated that there would be no merger. Um, that Because it's really this divide is where are the inventive aspects? If they're within the phone, then they're exhausted. If they're not, then they aren't. Whereas the district court, they kind of merged them all together. They said, well, the content claims require the handset, so we should exhaust them all. And the Federal Circuit, they looked a little deeper into the, the Quanta case, and they said, no, that's that's incorrect. They didn't rule on a simple but-for causation. Yeah. Okay, great. So the third issue is, to whom does the patent exhaustion doctrine extend? Um, the Federal Circuit ruled that it only extends to authorized acquirers and does not extend to third parties, um, which in this case involved content providers. Is this consistent with Supreme Court precedent? And does it matter that in Hilfrick, it was only the third party that would have benefited from patent exhaustion in this case? So as for the consistency with Supreme Court president, it, it certainly is. In the case, they talked about how Supreme Court cases, none of them have ever applied the doctrine to third parties. Uh, there was the um, previous case, the motion pictures, I believe it is, where it's been said that patent exhaustion doctrine protected third parties. But in that case, that um, it was more as a secondary beneficiary. So in that case, the authorized acquirer, person who purchased these projectors, they were sued for infringement because they violated this covenant in which they, they received the, the article. And then the third party was being sued as contributory or for contributory infringement. And But then once they exhausted um, the patents toward the authorized acquirer, they said, well, nobody can contribute if there's no, inf no direct infringement. And so that was the only um, 
area where some people have argued that it does apply. But in all of the cases, and uh, even within the federal circuit, they indicated that um, neither the court nor either of the parties uh, were able to identify a situation where the doctrine has applied to a third party. So I think the um, defendants in this case were trying to argue for um, something that hasn't necessarily been recognized by the Supreme Court, but they're, I think they're trying to argue that it's inherent or they should extend it to that respect. Um, and as for whether it matters that um, only uh, it's only the third party that would have benefited, um, not necessarily. So this, um, the fact that the third party would have benefited only, that helped to uh, show that these were two different inventions. That was kind of one of the early steps is that they said, you know, this helps to show that they're two inventions. And then, then when they proceed to the substantial embodiment test, they're able to say, well, handsets claims are exhausted, content claims are not. Um, but, uh, you know, it would be a more complicated matter if both the authorized acquirer and the third party would both practice the claims. But in that situation, the authorized acquirer, uh, the patent claims would be exhausted. But the third party, most likely there'd be still some sort of infringement, although it's It'd be, you know, that would all depend on what sort of technology it is and if it's kind of through a, um, you know, copying um, kind of theory of, of infringing the claims versus, you know, if you're able to actually get a hold of the unit, certainly you're not infringing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I think that really matters. Okay, so we covered motion pictures, which is something I wanted to get to. So thank okay. you for that. Um, so we're going to kind of wind down here. What are are we likely to see the Supreme Court step in here? Um, in a, is there one issue specifically that they might? Yeah. So uh, so as for the this uh, Helford case, um, so I just checked today, and there wasn't any um, cert granted in this in this situation. Um, so I don't think they'll be hearing on this case, and that might signal that they agree with the federal circuit, or it might just be that you know the, the facts uh, don't really align for what they might want to resolve. But I think you know there is a chance that the Supreme Court, at a later date, with a later case with different facts, might um, kind of raise the patent exhaustion doctrine, similar to what was discussed here. And if they do, I would most expect them to discuss this authorized acquirer limitation. Is there ever a situation where an authorized acquirer could be protected by the exhaustion doctrine? Now, in this situation where, you know, they're, they're two very different uh, parties that practice these inventions, um, you know, this might be a situation where they're not protected, but in with other facts, the Supreme Court certainly could. Um, and, you know, there, there was a, uh, there is a potential for the Supreme Court to discuss this soon. So there was this case that came out February of last year, so about 13 months ago, and it, it was interesting. It was called Lexmark, and there years back there was this uh, federal circuit case called uh, Malincrot, and this case held that uh, a patentee is permitted to place restrictions on a patented article that restricts its use, and and so this kind of conflicted with the patent exhaustion doctrine, and then when Quanta came out in 2008. And everyone assumed that Quanta overruled this and said you can't place restrictions on patented articles. And so lots of district courts have been assuming that Malincrot was overruled. And scholarly commentators have all assumed this as well. But then in Lexmark in February 2016, the Federal Circuit in this other case expressly said Malincrot is still good law. It was not overruled by the by the Supreme Court. And so and Lexmark was just granted cert in December of, of 2016, so just a couple months ago. And so the Supreme Court, they, they might have taken this up because they want to expressly overrule Malincrot. 
or maybe there's other issues in Lexmark, but um, this would probably be an opportunity where they could touch on the patent exhaustion doctrine, at least in the, the context of these post-sale restrictions. They might might even, whether in dicta or something, touch on authorized acquirers as well. Well, great. We might have to have you back on when that comes out. From a, more of a practitioner standpoint, what could uh, what could they have done differently to avoid this litigation? So I think in terms of the patent holder, you know, there's a couple things. Um, so one of the issues that came up that kind of led led this awry is that they did license their entire patent portfolio to the manufacturers. So to Apple, Samsung, other manufacturers, both the content claims and the handset. So it's probably because they, the manufacturers just wanted to make sure that they wouldn't you know, infringe anything, maybe when they're testing things out, trying to send content to the phones to check. Um, so this, so if they only license the handset claims um, and then only license the content claims to outside parties and kept them completely separate, I think there'd be less of an argument that everything was exhausted because everything was licensed in the phones or the, to the phone manufacturers. Um, another possibility would be to um, more explicitly divide up the, the patents or the claims into distinct patents. Um, so here there was some overlap with some content and handset claims in, in the patents. Um, and if they you know, more separated those out um, into patents based on a later strategy where they only license these patents to entity Y, only these to entity X, it would, it would uh, prevent this sort of situation where you have parties having arguments saying, well, they're exhausted because of the same patents, because they're all licensed to the same manufacturer. Um, but following this case, now with the federal circuit law, you know, that's not real important anymore because now the federal circuit says, you know, there can be this overlap. Um, it really comes down to the inventions sort of thing. But um, from a practitioner standpoint, you know, I guess reducing this overlap um, would certainly make it a clearer case that there is no, uh, no exhaustion in that situation. Great, great. I think we're wrapped up on the, on the Hilfrich issue. Um, how about a Jeff Schmidt update? What's going on in your life? What are you thinking about? What what do you have moving forward? Just give us some of the give us some of the listeners. Uh, see for me, well, I'm looking forward to graduating. About two months here, and then I'll be uh, studying for the bar, okay. and then uh, moving to San Diego, practicing law. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, outside of that, it's uh, it's been a good time here at Notre Dame, and it's it's been fun writing about this topic and doing a directed reading right now on patent an eligible subject matter and kind of the international standards and how the United States um, law differs from various other countries and then some um, some of the concerns that raises along okay. with uh, with some potential for harmonizing that in the future and so that was that was interesting as well and are you doing that with Professor Yelderman as well uh, no I'm doing that with Professor Fusco okay Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so we want to thank Jeff for coming on. Uh, he helped me through the first episode and really, really pulled it off well. Um, his expertise certainly has made this this show, and that's what we're looking for. Up next on A Pint of Law is Professor Jimmy Grule, who will talk about his upcoming article in the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs titled Utilizing Secondary Sanctions to Curtail the Financing of the Islamic State. Professor Grule is, first and foremost, my criminal law professor, but he is also recognized as an expert in the field of international law and is highly regarded for developing and implementing the U.S. Treasury Department's global strategy to combat terrorist financing. So, once again, thank you for joining Upon in Law, and I hope that you listen in again next time.